Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 14 to 16 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. For the sake of context, I'm going to read from verse 27 of chapter 1, because this is, we're getting near the end of this section, but it all flows together, and uh, the verses we will be looking at this morning um, are in response to everything that comes before it. So, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 <clears throat> Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast, because I did not run in vain, nor labor in vain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words and the circumstances in Paul's life that spurred him on to write these words to this church and that your church has benefited from 
since that time. Help us to benefit from them today as we hear these words, as we listen to them. Help us to understand them. Help us to apply them to our lives in our own particular circumstances. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that your words would go forth from my mouth in precision and power to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the Christian authors which I have benefited from greatly in terms of Christian living and personal holiness is Jerry Bridges. Some of you know about him and have read some of his books. And he not only had a gift for taking the truths of Scripture and the principles of discipleship and clarifying them for his readers, but also of exposing those subtle but frequent sins we commit so often, that we overlook them and become accustomed to them and are therefore not convicted as we ought to when we commit them. He does an excellent job of exposing these sins to us in books like The Pursuit of Holiness and Trusting God and my favorite, Respectable Sins, which is uh, convicting for anyone who reads this. In this passage before us this morning, we'll see many of those sins and the manifestations of those sins which Jerry Bridges wrote about. But more than that, we will see what I believe is the most respectable sin which we commit because it's come so naturally to fallen humanity. And it's one of the most subtle, the most prevalent, and the most frequent sins we see in society. It's common in every workplace, every family, every organization, and sadly in many churches. This sin is found in every form of media. It's in nearly every news broadcast, talk show, and sports commentary, and is the motive and subject of most comedy routines. This is the ever-pervasive sin of complaining, or grumbling, as the Bible most often speaks of it, because grumbling or disputing is so prevalent within fallen humanity that is the very reason why it's the first sin Paul mentions after his command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in verse 12. And for the Philippians and anyone reading this letter who might be wondering precisely how am I to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? How am I to live my life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Paul says you start by adopting this profound and radical behavior of not complaining. Of doing all things without grumbling or disputing. This is the attitude and demeanor by which we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And this command to do all things without grumbling or disputing is profoundly linked to that phrase with fear and trembling. Because when we complain, we are not living before God with fear and trembling. In that moment in which we complain, we either forget that God is sovereign over all circumstances, that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, or we charge him with not being good or not caring about us, or not knowing what is best for us in our particular situation, in this time and place in our lives, or we behave as if there is no God. Or that he is not actively working in his creation at all times to bring about his purposes. That he is not exercising complete control over things like human governments and politics 
international trade and the economy, my job and the people I work with, the weather, or his church, things which every one of us has complained about in the past, or still does on a routine, if not daily, basis. This is the reason why Paul's command is so applicable to uh, every one of us here, and as we will see, is actually connected to a host of other sins we need to put off and the righteous and holy behaviors we need to strive to put on. So as one of my professors have said, and many pastors have said before, buckle up, put your crash helmets on, and prepare to be convicted. (laughs) If you're not already, (laughs) I mean, just that simple verse, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That ought to convict you. And as we think about this and we seek to understand how often we grumble and dispute and how we are to put this off and how it's connected to other sins, we're going to look at this command today from two perspectives, which Paul lays out for us here. There's two perspectives of this command to do all things without grumbling or disputing. First, we have the parameters of the command in verse 14, that simple, clear, concise statement to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then we will look at the purposes for the command, which he will explain in verses 15 and 16. First, the parameters of the command. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This Command covers three aspects of our lives. In this simple phrase, he says, do everything, all things. Uh, It doesn't leave leave anything out without grumbling or disputing. And it covers the aspects of our lives in, in all of our actions. As he says, do all things. So that means every action we do, every behavior. It covers all of our emotions, as he, he says, without grumbling, and, and we'll see that. And then it, it covers uh, all of our thinking, and the word disputing. But first, we'll look at all of our actions and see what this means and what it does not mean. What this means is that in striving to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are to obey and honor God in all of our behavior, in all places, at all times, fully trusting that He is in complete control of our circumstances and knows what's best for us. Everything we do. Oftentimes I will um, pray this prayer um, either before my family or um, just in my own devotional times, uh, Lord, help me to honor you in all that I think, say, and do, because that covers all the, uh, all the context of our sin, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Paul says we are to do all things in thought, word, or deed without grumbling or disputing. What this does not mean is that there is ever a context, a situation, or circumstance in which it's okay to complain or grumble or question God. And the prime example of this, as most of you know, is Job. Uh, If you're familiar with the book, you know that um, Job probably suffered more than any other character 
in the Bible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ when he suffered on the cross. And he suffered more than most people in church history. And in his suffering, he began his trial very well. He began his trial as, as all of us ought to uh, begin a trial of suffering. We read in Job uh, chapter 1 at the end of the chapter as, as uh, God comes to, um, talks to Satan and has this wager with Satan. And Satan accuses Job before God that um, Job only follows you, he only trusts you, he only worships you because you bless him so much. Because of his circumstances. Because his circumstances are so great, he blesses you. And, and uh, so God, um, who had ordained this before eternity or, or before in eternity past, um, said, okay, go ahead. Take away all that he has. Just do not take his life. And so in uh, uh, about the course of a day, he, he loses everything. Everything. And at the end of chapter 1, we read, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. As some uh, commentator said, that was probably the greatest act of worship um, in the Bible and perhaps in redemptive history. After having everything taken away from him in Tragedy after tragedy, he worships, and then it follows. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. This is an example of how we are to respond in our trials. And then even later on, as uh, Satan would up the ante and strike his flesh with harmful boils, and even his wife looks at him. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not grumble. He did not complain. Something which uh, even he would go on and and wonder, why is this happening to me? And if we're familiar with the book, we see that he started the trial well, and then the rest of the book, he goes through it, talking and discoursing with friends who seek to charge him with evil and sin, and that he deserves this, and, and he's trying to hold fast to his integrity and saying, no, I did not deserve this. There must be some other reason, reason why. And then towards the end of the book, we will see that he is confronted for questioning God. This is an example of the fact that we are to uh, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Whatever circumstances may come in our lives, whatever source of trial or suffering or affliction, and, and however it may come, whether it came as a result of our own sin and foolishness or uh, just because we live in a sin-cursed world and sinners are sinning against us, or maybe God has another plan for this trial and this circumstance, for this affliction that we won't know this side of eternity, or eternity, but whatever the case may be, we are to endure the trial, go through it, do all things without grumbling or disputing in all of our actions. As 
command not only um, encompasses all our actions, though, it's, it's all of our emotions. As he says, without grumbling. One commentator writes that the Greek word for complaining is a term that actually sounds like what it means. Its pronunciation is much like muttering or grumbling in a low tone of voice. It is an emotional rejection of God's providence, will, and circumstances for one's life. The word for disputing, on the other hand, is more intellectual, and here means questionings or criticisms directed negatively for God. This term, without grumbling, and the, the verb before, uh, you know, as... Uh, that commentator writes, it sounds like what it means, like our English term, buzzing. Um, it's ganguzma. Utterance made in a low tone of voice, one of discontent or satisfaction. It's behind the scenes talk, a low whispering, a murmuring. It's, it's just an emotional um, frustration, anger. We're familiar with that. Sometimes we can see murmuring um, in someone's attitude. And we don't know exactly what's going on, precisely what's going on in the heart, but um, we see this um, more prevalent in children. As they just seem to wear their emotions on their sleeves and just uh, show what's in their heart more easily than uh, adults who have learned how to hide it. It just comes out. Sometimes we can see it in their, their facial expressions and their body language. And then the, the low tone of voice that we don't know exactly what's on their lips or what words they're saying, but we know they're grumbling. And all of us have done this. What this does not mean, however, is that it's ever wrong to express grief or sorrow or even great emotional pain over a loss or while we are in the midst of a trial or affliction or a tragedy. It's, it's grumbling that's, in a sense, uh, accusing God of giving us circumstances which we do not deserve. That I don't deserve this. This shouldn't be happening to me. Uh, things should go how I planned and how I expected them. This is not the way the world should work. Sometimes our, our reasonings are true in those moments, but nonetheless, we are, uh, in a sense, uh, bucking against God, against his plans, against his providence, against his sovereignty, against his perfect wisdom. And so this command not only encompasses everything we do, all of our actions, all of our behaviors, but all of the emotions and attitudes of our heart. That It gets down to the level of discontentment and selfishness and pride. That I deserve better. But it also encompasses all of our thinking. As Paul says, do not... Only do all things without grumbling, but to do all things without disputing, questioning. And this term is uh, dialogismon, uh, 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 through logic, 
through reasoning. It's, it's the, as uh, one lexicon states, the process of reasoning, a content of reasoning, or a conclusion reached through the use of reasoning, a verbal exchange that takes place when conflicting ideas are expressed. This is, in a sense, presenting a logical argument against God's expressed will or commands for you to follow and why you won't do them. Lord, I, I can't submit to my boss. He's unreasonable. He's, he's stupid. He doesn't understand how things should work. Lord, I, I, can't, um, I can't go love my neighbor because they're unreasonable. They're unlovable. They're wicked. They're foolish. And a host of other things. They, they don't, what have they done for me? Or, or they won't receive it. Lord, I, I can't, you know, love my wife as Christ loves the church. Because she won't listen. I can't submit to my husband. All other sorts of arguments. Uh, I, I, I can't, you know make it on time, or I can't do all these things that you have laid before me this week. This is the reasoning in our minds, this logical argument that we mull over. Uh, it's the excuse-making, the blame-shifting, um, the intellectual argument that we come up with to uh, relieve ourselves of the guilt of disobedience. And it's connected with our grumbling. And this is what Job was, in a sense, began to do as he starts to work out what in the ancient Near East was the retribution principle that you reap what you sow, which is a general truism, but it's not always true. And sometimes we are afflicted, sometimes we are in the midst of a trial, or we are... Um, just crushed by uh, some relationship uh, issue or financial issue or health issue. And oftentimes it's not our fault. It's not because of our sin, but just because God has a higher plan for us. And Job and his friends spend most of that book going over this, that there must be something you did wrong, and, and Job is wondering, well, I, I don't see anything that I did wrong, so there's no reason. And then at the end, he is confronted by the Lord himself, as we see in Job 38. It, and here's, here's a great um, section of the, of the Word of God to go to if you're ever frustrated with your circumstances, if you ever feel pride welling up within you, if you ever feel like I deserve better or why is this happening to me, then this is a good place to go to, to go to the end of, of the book of Job and Job 38 and listen to this as Yahweh talks to Job and he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you make no, me known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know understanding. In other words, what right do you have to question me? I created you. I created everything around you. I ordained your circumstances. I ordained your life. I've led you. I've provided for you. I've helped you. 
I've given you life and breath. You breathe my air and eat my food and drink my water. Who are you to question me? My ways are higher than your ways. We're not to question God about why our circumstances are the way they are. The only question we should ask is, how am I to glorify you in the midst of these circumstances, in the midst of this significant heart-crushing trial? How am I to obey you? How am I to honor you? What this does not mean, however, is that, that we can't reason or argue or dispute those things in this world which are wrong or sinful or that we shouldn't confront or get angry over the evils in this world that we shouldn't have that we don't have to have this Pollyanna attitude of Kesarah, Kesarah, whatever will be, will be that um, we just take it as it is or just accept um, evils because we live in a fallen world this does not mean that we can't um, confront evil this does not mean that we shouldn't get furious over things like uh, abortion or um, uh, sexual immorality at, at such a level that uh, children are harmed. All the gross iniquities in our world, corruption in government, lies. It doesn't mean that we can't say no to somebody or, or even turn down a ministry opportunity just means that we should not dispute with God or question his will or his commands. And the Bible is full of examples of this grumbling and disputing. It goes all the way back to the garden. It is perhaps, a, you know, uh, some commentators would, um, would question whether or not this was the second sin. Um, but we see that after... Um, Eve was tempted, and she gave the fruit to Adam, and then he ate it. And then God confronts Adam and Eve as they're trying to hide, and, and um, God says, what did you do? And he, he comes up with this excuse. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Mostly blame shifting, but there's also an uh, uh, excuse. Uh, Maybe even a complaining. Uh, we see a bit of disputing here. It's not my fault. You gave her to me. We also see this, and it's not much farther, um, you know, uh, not in the very next chapter of Genesis. We see this with Cain. You know, as he has uh, frustrated because God did not accept his sacrifice and, and there's many commentators that differ over about why and and some say it was the nature of the sacrifice some say it was his heart attitude probably more along the lines of his heart attitude and offering the sacrifice but nonetheless he kills his brother as a result of it and then afterwards when God confronts him and says what have you done the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground and now cursed are you from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand when you cultivate the ground it will no longer yield its strength to you you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on earth and then Cain 
It's amazing that right after murdering his brother and then he receives this uh, sentence of judgment, of punishment for his sin, for his crime, he says, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on earth and it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. And since I... I can't bear this punishment. This is too much. Questioning God. Grumbling against what he deserves. And he deserved far worse. But we, we don't have to go much further in the Bible. And the prime example, which we all know, and is woven throughout the whole Old Testament and even finds... Uh, uh, mentioned in the New Testament. It's throughout the whole history of the Jews. It's part of their nation. It's part of their heritage. But it's also a prime example for us as the New Testament church, and that is the Israelites in the wilderness. If you know, you know even a small bit about your Bible, you know about their great deliverance. You know about their great affliction and just the miraculous signs and wonders that... Um, that were happened through Moses of all these ten signs of, of plagues which only touched the Egyptians and then the Israelites who were dwelling beside the Egyptians were not, um, were not afflicted by the same uh, miracles and, and judgment. And then their, their great deliverance that these people who have held them in captivity and increased their affliction for hundreds of years that as they leave they in a sense ask them for gold and silver and they in a sense plunder God moves through their hearts and they plunder the Egyptians and they are led out and then uh, there's this miraculous sign of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night which leads them they see the the Red Sea split and open up and it's not much long after that that they begin to grumble. They grumble about their circumstance. They, they grumble about why did God bring us out here? Was it to die? Um, who is this person, Moses, that you had picked to lead us? Uh, we're hungry, we're thirsty, and then he even gives them food and water in such a way that it is completely and irrefutably a miracle, and yet they continue to grumble. And so Paul tells the Corinthians and tells us, I do not, in 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, the pillar of cloud, and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
grumbling and complaining about their situations and and right after and in the midst of seeing God's miraculous work his his uh, deliverance his provision great miracles and and it's easy for us to look back and see and and think how could you forget how could you um, moan and complain in the wilderness uh, of wanting to go back to Egypt because of the leeks and the onions and the melons and the fish you had to eat that you would rather be in slavery to have that food than to be in the wilderness to be free and have to eat manna, this miraculous food that falls from heaven and, and be given quail and water and see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and see all these wonderful works why would you want to go back? Why would you grumble and complain? We forget about all the things that we grumble and complain for and about. And yes, it's true that um, we haven't seen these miracles, but we have the miracle of regeneration. We have seen some of us miracles of salvation and other people of repentance. Grumbling is an expression, ultimately, of discontentment with our situations, with our circumstances, rooted in selfishness. It goes back to pride that we think we deserve a better set of circumstances, that things should go the way we think they ought to go, that that we know better what's good for us. And it's ultimately rooted in unbelief. That we truly don't believe God. We truly do not believe his promises. We do, truly do not believe that he is God, that he is in control. It's an offense against God and rebelling against his sovereignty over all circumstances. It's offense against his perfect providence and ordaining and guiding you through your particular circumstances. And it displays a mistrust in his character and his wisdom and his goodness. That God is good. And whatever he has for us tomorrow or the week ahead or the next year, whether it be the loss of job or health or a loved one or affliction, whatever it may be, he knows what's best for us. Puritan Thomas Boston, he writes this, See here the evil of murmuring and complaining at our lot in the world. How apt are ye to quarrel with God, as if he were in the wrong when his dealings with you are not according to your own desires and wishes. You demand a reason and call God to an account? Why am I thus? Why so much afflicted and distressed? Why so long afflicted? And why such an affliction rather than another? Why am I so poor and another so rich? Thus your hearts rise up against God. But you should remember that this is to defame the counsels of infinite wisdom, as if God had not ordered your affairs wisely enough in his eternal counsel. It's an affront against God, against his sovereignty, against his wisdom, against his goodness, against his love, against his forgiveness, his forbearance. These are the parameters of this command that it involves all our actions, all our emotions, all our thinkings in response to our situation, our circumstances, what God has called us to be and do, that we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then Paul 
elaborates on this command. He lays out the parameters of the command. Right after he has called us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God himself, our creator, is at work in us, that we are to fear God, we are to tremble before him and his word. We are to honor him in everything we think, say, and do. And if we do that, we will submit to his sovereign plan and purposes. And then Paul lays out the purposes for this command. Verses 15 and 16. So that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, So in the day of Christ, I will have reason to boast because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. We see this this short phrase in verse 14 and then he elaborates on uh, the purposes for this command. Paul provides them with three reasons here for this command. First, for the sake of our holiness. Second, we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing for the sake of the gospel. And finally, we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing for the sake of Paul's ministry. First, for the sake of our own holiness, that we would be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, for the sake of our holiness, that that no charge could be brought against us. That no one could, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in the church, in the family, could uh, bring a grievous charge against our character. Because this is such a prevalent sin that one who does not complain, one who does not grumble, one who does not dispute, stands out. They stand out as almost uh, blameless and innocent, without blemish. And this links back to, in a sense, the the Old Testament sacrifices, that they were to be uh, without blemish, without spot or wrinkle, as even uh, we read about how uh, God will sanctify his church. He will take away all blemishes, spots, and wrinkles. And we would also prove to be children of God, that we would be separate. Is that's really, as we think of holiness, we think of purity, we think of a perfect morality, but another aspect of that term is a separateness, an otherness. That God himself is holy, holy, holy. He's completely distinct from his creation, from people. Even though we are made in his image, uh, and we are in a sense made in his likeness, he is not like us. He's separate. He is holy. And yet he calls us and he commands us to be holy as he is holy. That we are to be blameless and innocent without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that we would stand out, that, that people could, in a sense, pick us out by our words and our actions and our behaviors, and, and not that we would just blend in. Yes, there's a lots of things that we do like all other people do. We, we have 
jobs and families and relationships and we eat and drink and there's many activities we do but how we live and move on and have our being should be different should be distinct we should see be so distinct that we stand out and the main way in which we stand out is that we should be doing everything we do without grumbling or disputing this should be so uh, profound that it marks us in this phrase, it's interesting that Paul uses this phrase in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation because there's certain times throughout, especially in the Old Testament, and we'll see, even see it in the New Testament, in which this phrase is used. And it's used by God in, in a sense in derision against those who he is upset against, uh, about, those who are living in unbelief, those who reject him. And even his own people. Moses, in, at the end of Deuteronomy, he, he, God commands him to write this song and to, uh, to uh, in a sense, speak this song, teach this song to the Israelites. Uh, it, it's, it's so genius because uh, you know, music is didactive. It has a teaching element to it that you can uh, put something to song as you know, many of us are familiar with in um, children's ministries or Awana or where we have, make songs out of verses and even in our own hymns. And when we put something to song, we remember it. And so God commands uh, Moses to write this song at the end of Deuteronomy. And within that song, all throughout that song, there are rebukes. <laughs> like You are to learn this song and remember it and sing it over and over again so you remember how wicked you are, how, how unfaithful you were, and how I will, in a sense, judge you if you continue in your wickedness and your unfaithfulness. And in the beginning of that song, in Deuteronomy 32.5, it says this, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Paul links this phrase. He, 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 he did not just pick this phrase out of the air when he talks about grumbling and disputing. He, he wants the Philippians and anyone who reads this to think about the Israelites in the wilderness. As God would later say, he despised that generation and he killed them all off. They would not enter his rest. They would not enter into the promised land because they were a crooked and perverse generation. And Jesus also, he uses this, this phrase as well. I mean, it's slightly different wording, but it's interesting how he uses it. In this healing, in Matthew chapter 17, uh, this crowd comes to him. And a man comes up to Jesus and falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. And what's interesting is that Jesus gives this rebuke in the midst of this man um, seeking mercy, seeking healing. This is a good act. This man has a good request. And he's, in a sense, 
rebuking his disciples because they could not cure him. He's also rebuking all the other people because Jesus had come. He had done miraculous works. He had preached the gospel. All the signs of the fact that he was the Messiah was there. And yet they, as the Israelites in the wilderness, stumbled and faltered in their faith. They did not believe him. And because of that, they were an unbelieving and perverse generation which he despised. Also in Acts chapter 2, Peter would use this phrase as well. At Pentecost, as, as the Holy Spirit is descending upon the disciples and we see the, they're speaking in tongues and the, the church is adding numbers to them and, and, and these miraculous works are happening and then um, all the people, the Jews, are coming and seeing what's happening and they're questioning what's happening and Peter says to them, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. Every time this phrase is used in the Bible, it is used as a rebuke against unbelief. This is what is happening here. When, when Paul says to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, he's saying that when you refrain from grumbling and disputing, that you are not like the unbelievers. When you do grumble and dispute, you are crooked and unbelieving you are living in unbelief you're not believing God for who he is you're not taking him at his word you're not resting on his promises you're not trusting in him because you think you know better you think you have a better way you think my life should go this way and not the way God has ordained it Paul calls us to obey this command, first and foremost, for the sake of our holiness, that we would not be a crooked and perverse generation like the Israelites in the wilderness or like people today that do not believe God, that offend God, that do not trust God, they do not seek God while he may be found, they do not call upon him while he is near, they do not submit to his laws and his words and his character. They don't trust him. They don't believe in him. And so they are a crooked and perverse generation. The second, the second reason why Paul gives this command and the purpose for this command is not only for the sake of our holiness, that we would be blameless and innocent, that we would prove ourselves to be children of God, holy and separate, but also for the sake of the gospel. That among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. That as we do all things without grumbling or disputing, we are, in a, in a sense, uh, 
holding fast or holding forth the word of life. We are shining as lights in the world. We stand out amongst the darkness and the decay of this world. We are different, or as one commentator said, we are luminaries. We are stars. We do all things without grumbling or disputing that our light would shine in the darkness. This is, in a sense, it goes back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And all throughout, even all throughout the Bible, and John uses this, this uh, analogy, this metaphor of light and darkness. Where we see this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, which he says in Matthew 5, 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Paul, in a sense here, he says the the number one way we do that is by not complaining, not grumbling, not disputing, not being like everybody else in the world. Not being like all the people that gather around the water cooler at work and complain about the boss and the workplace and the economy and the government and all host of other things that we so commonly uh, complain about. Seen this, uh, you know, and you've all seen this in every workplace, but I remember um, being in the military and just uh, one principle of leadership which wasn't, always uh, exercise, but there was a couple times I would see it, um, and I was surprised. This concept that complaining is a cancer, and it's a cancer that will spread throughout the unit and the organization, and it will undermine the mission. It'll undermine the esprit de corps or the uh, camaraderie or the cohesion of the unit. And that's what complaining does. It's a cancer that spreads. It's a cancer which the Israelites were afflicted with, which spread throughout so much so that thousands of them grumbled. And they grumbled against God's plan. They grumbled against Moses, against Aaron. They grumbled against the situation. And so God struck them. And it got so bad that at one point, Moses himself was complaining to God about the grumblers. That's when grumbling gets really bad, is when you complain about grumblers. Oh, all these people just going on and on and murmuring and complaining and rah, rah, rah. And that's how it spreads, like a cancer. It's, it, it's so um, just, you're so susceptible to it. It's so natural to us. Because we, in a sense, want to be lords of our lives. We want to rule our lives. We want to be uh, the captain of our own ship, so to speak. But we are called to be different. We are called to be separate. And we are called to do so for the sake of our holiness and for the sake of the gospel that we would, in a sense, stand out. That we would let our light shine. That we would be different. And so much so that people might ask you, This only happened to me once, and I was actually very convicted by it because someone asked me, they said, I never hear you complain. And I said, well, well, it's in my heart, (laughs) but it may not come, thank you, um, but it convicted me to even watch my mouth even more so, and more than that, to watch my heart, to check my heart. 
Paul calls us to do all things without grumbling or disputing for the sake of our holiness, for the sake of the gospel, that we would be lights in the world and that our testimony would also be consistent with the word of life. You see this in Lamentations 3, and if you're familiar with Jeremiah, um, the prophet who, as many would say, that they don't think had any converts. And we don't know for sure, but from a human perspective, it seems as if he had a, a, a failed ministry, that he just continued to preach judgment on the Israelites, and judgment came, and, and it seems as if no one repented. And then he was even there at the siege of Jerusalem and saw the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he writes this book of Lamentations after the fact, and, and it is just a lamenting over the, just a sin and a, the idolatry of Israel and their refusal to repent. And then here in Lamentations 3.37, he, he, he says, he writes, Who is there who speaks and it happens? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? Why should any living person or any man complain because of his sins? Here Jeremiah is and seeing Jerusalem ransacked, destroyed, um, uh, people murdered, uh, even women eating their own babies. It's horrendous. And he's lamenting. He says, why should any living person or any man complain because of his sins? This is the reason why Jerusalem was ransacked, why judgment was coming. And he says, no one. You have no reason. You have no right. You have no excuse to complain about this. You deserve this. In fact, you deserve worse than this. You deserve an eternity in hell because you have sinned against your creator, against your God from the beginning of your life in thought, word, and deed. And yet all he has ever done is blessed you. We are to put away all grumbling and disputing for the sake of the gospel, that our testimony would be consistent with the gospel. That amazing grace, how, how, how sweet the sound. I was once, uh, once was lost, but now I'm found. God saved a wretch like me. What do I have to complain about? Puritan John brought us, he writes this, Is it not lamentable that men will never thank God for the countless blessings he confers upon them? And then remember him only to complain of the evils which they have brought upon themselves, and which are never half so great as their misconduct deserves. You know, when I, I was a new believer, I would, I would hear this, and, and you would probably hear this, um, you've probably heard this before in church. Uh, you know, we come to church, and just like any other organization, but especially in church, and we should say this, and we um, just a, a normal greeting, and we say, hi, how are you? And, and every once in a while, you will hear a, a believer say, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. And that's true. And it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, it's still better than you deserve. 
and it will always be better than you deserve. Anything that happens this side of hell is mercy. It's mercy. And there's a sense that we don't really grasp how evil and wicked we are, the depth of our sin. I remember there's this, this famous uh, uh, video clip. Um, some of you have probably seen it. Of um, a famous theologian and pastor. Um, I don't agree with everything he says, but most of it, um, R.C. Sproul. And he's at a conference, and there's this Q&A time, and, and someone uh, brings a question um, up to him, and he says, wasn't it a bit, um, and I'm paraphrasing, extreme or harsh that God would um, condemn the whole of humanity because of one man's single sin? And, and he doesn't even think about it. He just responds, what's wrong with you people? Like, do you even understand? Do you even understand who you're sinning against? Do you even understand the depth of your sin? Do you understand who God is? And he goes on to elaborate. This is what's wrong with the church. They have such a low view of God, they don't even understand who their creator is. That you are a creation, and because you are a creation, you are accountable to your creator for everything. So he has every right to damn you for one sin. There's nothing you should ever complain about. Nothing. Especially when you understand the gospel and what you've been saved from. Who are you to question back to God, why have you made me such? Why have you given me these circumstances? We should only and ever be thankful and grateful that God has not given us what we truly deserve. And there may be some of us here who have to ask that question, will I get what I deserve? Have I repented? Have I believed? Have I experienced the grace of God? Have I come to him as a humble and contrite sinner seeking his forgiveness and his mercy because I don't deserve it because I've sinned against my creator. We are to do all things without grumbling or disputing for the sake of our holiness, for the sake of the gospel, and finally, for the sake of Paul's ministry, which is interesting that he would tack this on the end, but it's fitting. It's fitting. As he says at the end of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. They say, do all these things, do everything without grumbling or disputing so that I will have a reason to boast for, for my sake, for the sake of my ministry, for the sake of all the sacrifices I made and all the effort I put forth to go preach the word to you Philippians who, um, in a sense, be stoned and thrown in jail in Philippi, falsely accused, all the writing he did, all, all of his ministry, not just a ministry to the Philippians, but um, to all the other churches, because it builds on um, 
on each uh, ministry. As, as Paul would um, go from church to church, he would learn and grow. And, and so um, the, his, his later ministries would also have the benefit of his earlier ministries as he grew in his experience and knowledge and, and giftings. It's for the sake of all of Paul's ministry that he would boast about them at the judgment because he will give an account as we will all give an account. Every single person will give an account and, and oftentimes we think of that judgment in terms of the unbelievers who will be judged and that is right and true but we as believers will also be judged for our rewards. Not, not a punitive judgment but whether or not we have used our time and our talents and our treasure wisely for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of God, whether or not we have uh, redeemed the time, what we have done for the Lord. As Paul would write to the Thessalonians, a church which he uh, loved, he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? That there would be a judgment, that, that Paul would be judged at the end of his life. And, and even um, with the effects of his ministry throughout the ages. He's saying that you Philippians, and by extension even us, how you obey this command, how you apply it to your lives, will affect my rewards in glory. And I'll have reason to boast because I did not run in vain or labor in vain that his efforts or sacrifices would not prove to be a waste. And what's interesting is, you know, his most uh, greatest uh, corrective letter, his greatest rebuke was against the Galatians. And he says, because they're uh, going astray from the gospel of grace and they're falling into legalism and, and uh, they're, they're falling prey to the Judaizers and they're adding, in a sense, works to their salvation and, and, and falling into self-righteousness. And he says to them in Galatians 4.11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you for nothing. That, that my labor for you would, would be in vain, would be a waste. He does not want this to happen to the Philippians or to anyone who would read this letter. But that in the day of Christ, in the day of judgment, that he would see that his investment bore fruits. His labor bore fruits, that he did not labor in vain. It wasn't a waste. And also that they would honor him through their holy conduct. They would honor his labor as their own pastor, missionary, a spiritual father, ministry leader. There's a sense that, you know, for most of us, we've grown up in the church and we've had several people who have poured into our lives. Whether it was a Sunday school teacher or the person in Awana or um, just a, a, a man, an older man or an older woman in the church or a deacon or a pastor or someone that has discipled us or even by way of an extension, an author or someone uh, who we never, in a sense, physically sat under their teaching, but we listened to their sermons. And so we've learned from them and we respect them and we honor them by applying their teaching to our lives and we grow 
so that they will, in a sense, see the fruit of their labors at the judgment. That's why the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That Paul would give an account, all leaders will give an account for how they shepherd God's people. The writer to Hebrews goes on, he says, So that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. Unprofitable for you. It's one thing if a pastor or a ministry leader um, sins and and they um, don't do what they're supposed to do, and and they will bear that that, um, punishment or that rebuke or that discipline for their sins. But it's another thing when um, those under their charge do not submit to them because they think they know better. Perhaps they do know better, but if it's not in accord with the word of God, then it's definitely not better. Paul calls them to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that they would be holy, that they would... Uh, honor the gospel and that they would also honor him and, and these this command is weighty it's so weighty because if we are honest with ourselves we complain and uh, all the time and, and sometimes we don't even realize it we complain so much we don't even realize it until someone um, mentions it or just um, explains what we're doing and, and you know, I, I listen to sermons to um, not only study for preaching, but just for my own edification, my own benefit. And it seems like every sermon I've listened to on this text, there's been this challenge that has been given to the people. And so I extend it to you as well to see how long you can go. Go a day without complaining. Just try it. Go a day without complaining. And, and if you just set that challenge to yourself you will start to see and you'll start to catch yourself when the murmuring and the complaining wells up within your heart and within your mind and 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 tries to come out of your mouth and as it's about to come out your mouth you'll almost try to catch it and pull it back in it's so prevalent within us and it has such an offense against god and so i'm going to leave you with this which i found very profitable and confronting that one pastor he writes a 12-point cure for complaining and uh you could try to write down every one of the 12 points if nothing else just write down the verse reference because he has a verse reference for each one if you really want the exact wording you can come to me after and I'll, i'll show you my notes but he writes this 12 point cure for complaining number one god commands me never to complain Philippians 2.14, right there. Don't complain. So that, that's the, the first cure for complaining. Don't do it, because God commands me never to complain. Second, God commands me to give thanks in every circumstance. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which is, in a sense, almost the opposite. The exact opposite of complaining is giving thanks. Third, God commands me to rejoice always and especially in times of trial. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and James 1.2 because there is a sense of rejoicing is also the opposite of complaining. You can't complain and rejoice at the same time. Fourth, I always deserve 
much worse than what I am suffering now. In fact, I deserve hell. Lamentations 3.39, Luke 13.2-3. Fifth, in light of the eternal happiness and glory that I will experience in heaven, this present trial is extremely brief and insignificant, even if it were to last a lifetime. Romans 8.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.19, as Paul says in Romans 8, for this um, momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Number six, my suffering is far less than that which Christ suffered, and he did not complain. 1 Peter 2.23, in being reviled, he did not revile in, in return. This is what I try to meditate upon. Every time there's any sort of pain or suffering, I try to meditate upon Christ's suffering. And um, I'm quickly rebuked and put in my place that you know, my suffering is in no comparison to his. Number seven, to complain is to say that God is not just. Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Whatever he does, whatever uh, circumstance that he ordains, is it not right? We are in a sense, when we complain, we are saying that God is not just. That we are, in a sense, um, uh, ascending to the seat of judgment. We think we know better. Number eight, faith and prayer exclude complaining. Psalm 34, 4. Faith and prayer exclude com complaining. That's why uh, this comes right after that command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, understanding who God is and his work in you, that there is a sense of faith and prayer, uh, understanding who he is, what he has done, and there's this relationship with him, this communication with him. Number nine, this difficulty is being used by God for my good, and it is foolish for me to complain against it. Romans 8, 28 uh, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who, are, who love him and are called according to his purpose. He says he causes all things to work together for good, not that all things are, in a sense, good at, in the moment or in that time, but they will work together for good. There will be a good, even though we might not see it then or even this side of eternity, we must trust him that it is working together for good. Namely, our holiness. Number 10, those more faithful than I have suffered far worse than I and did so without complaint. This is all Hebrews chapter 11. All the roll call of faith. And, and you, know, you can look there, you can look throughout all the Christian biographies and church history. And, and there are heroes of the faith throughout church history. Uh, men and women far greater than we will ever be who have suffered far worse than we will ever suffer. And they did it without complaining. They did it in faith. They did it for the glory of God, for the spread of his gospel. Number 11, complaining denies that God's grace is entirely sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. As Paul, in a sense, tells the Corinthians his, his uh, resume of suffering for the gospel. And it talks about the thorn in the flesh and how Jesus replied, to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And finally, number 12, the greatest suffering, the worst trial or difficulty, can never rob me of that which is of greatest value to me and my greatest joy, namely the love of Christ. Romans 8, 35 to 39, for who will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Because his love is not 
uh, dependent upon us or upon our love or upon what we have done, could do, or will do, but it's dependent upon him and his love for us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his own love for us in dying for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a verse that we quote in evangelism and we should, but we should also remember it in that God loved us, that he gave his only son. And if you do not know the love of God, the command is to repent and believe upon his one and only son, the only sacrifice for your sins, the only way in which you can be forgiven, the only way in which you can be redeemed and have a right relationship with God and escape the judgment of hell which you deserve. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for our complaining, for our grumbling, for our disputing, for thinking we know what's best in our limited knowledge, in our limited understanding, in our creatureliness. We offend you with our little faith, with our um, this unwillingness to submit and to obey with, with, with questioning your commands or, or saying that your commands are impossible, that we can't do it. Lord, you're good. You're always good. You're unchanging. You're all-knowing, perfect, omniscient, ever-present. Remind us of who you are and what you've done and what you've promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.